0: We come rejoicing into your presence, we come with hearts full of praise and mouths full of praise to your name because you are a great and a glorious God and we have known what it is to be blessed Lord God, truly blessed not blessed with the passing fancies and interests of this world but blessed in our very souls because of the work of Jesus Christ the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has come into this world, died a brutal death and risen again, conquering Satan's sin and death, and granting to us his righteousness through faith. Lord God, we rejoice in you with the psalmist tonight because of what you have done for us. And we are meeting here this evening in an unimpressive place, unimpressive people. And yet, Lord, we thank you that we have a great and a glorious and an impressive gospel to praise you for and worship you for. We thank you for all that you have done for us, We thank you that we have reason to rejoice. And God, we praise you for the great God that you are. Lord, we confess that all the gods, all the idols of this world are simply dumb images, pieces of wood or images of people that have no lasting significance and have no power over our lives. We thank you that you are the living one. You are the beginning and the end, the God of gods. We praise you tonight, Heavenly Father, for all that you are, your righteousness, your holiness, your justice and your goodness. We praise you Father that surrounded as we are in a world of sin and suffering nonetheless you are at work and you are bringing all of this to a close one day and making all of it new again where there will be no more sin and no more suffering. Lord we ask that you would bring that day quickly and Father as we come into your presence on this your day we come aware of our own sin and shortcoming we come aware that we have not lived out this gospel calling that we have received today perfectly and father we ask again for forgiveness of our sins lord we thank you for the pattern we have in this psalm i will come to the lord and i will confess my transgressions and he will forgive me for my iniquity thank you lord god that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins and lord we come to you in the strong name of jesus christ as we confess our sins We thank you that repentance and forgiveness is possible through him. We thank you that on this day, the Lord's day of rest, we we taste a little of that rest that awaits us in his presence in heaven. We thank you for all the blessings that come to us as we fix our eyes again upon Calvary's cross uh, this day. And we pray that as we do so tonight, we would be truly blessed. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship. Thank you for the church in which you've placed us. Thank you for all the blessings that came to us yesterday as we met to learn more about what it means to extend the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our endeavours, imperfect though they are, bless uh, the work of our hands, imperfect though we are, and help us, Lord, to extend the kingdom of Jesus throughout this island and beyond. Help us to give him the glory, not that we would do things to uh, increase the name of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, but that we would do all that we do uh, so that more people know the name of King Jesus. Lord, bless our church in the days to come. Help us to make wise decisions. Help us uh, to know where to send people and resources. Help us to know what to pray for. Help us to know what to do, Lord God. And help us, above all, to give give you all the glory for what we do. Be with us in this hour of worship, we pray. Help us, Father, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And may we leave here knowing that it was good for us to meet together, because in meeting together we met with our Savior. We pray all things in his name. Amen. We're going to sing pre-testament and to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians and chapter three. Sorry, beginning the reading at chapter two. uh, It's on page one one six nine if you're using the church Bibles. Page one one six nine, and in Paul's letter to the Galatians, his great concern is for them to understand the doctrine of justification by faith justified being declared righteous in God's sight being declared free from sin and righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ and that great truth that really is at the heart of all that we believe as Christians it was under attack uh, in the churches in Galatia Galatia uh, is situated in modern day Turkey and the believers there were coming under pressure from false teachers who were adding to and taking away from the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul had preached it to the Galatians. They were adding on things like works righteousness. They were adding on uh, adherence to the Jewish law and to all that went with that. And they were adding on the mark of circumcision. They marked God's uh, people in the Old Testament out as his covenant people. And Paul's great concern in the letter, it's a letter of urgency, it's a letter of sobriety, it's a letter of seriousness, is that the Galatians come back to what they know to be true. That they come back to the gospel that Paul has already preached to them. And in the opening part of the, of the letter, he uh, explains he, he reminds them of his office, he reminds them of his authority as a Jesus-appointed po- apostle. He goes on to give them a little bit of his own life history of how Jesus saved him, of how he went to Jerusalem, and how he met with some of the apostles there and began preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's spoken about that in chapters 1 and 2. And at the close of chapter 2, he begins talking about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That there's nothing else that we are to rely upon for our salvation. And so we're going to pick up the reading in in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15. And we hear the word of God. Paul says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the loss that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? or because you believe what you heard. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We'll end our reading at that ninth verse. And just before we come to study God's word, we'll bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, which you have inspired to be written. Lord, we confess that it is our only standard, it is our highest standard, rather, for how we live our lives and, and our trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, all that you have taught us in this word is perfect. And we pray, Lord, that as we study it now, your Holy Spirit would fill us, that he would fill us. And open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. And that Lord as we study a serious and a harsh word. uh, From the Apostle Paul to the believers in Galatia. Lord we pray that you would soften our hearts to hear those words. And that we would understand them. And that we would apply them to our lives by the power of the Spirit. And that he would remind us of the glorious gospel that we have to believe. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. you can keep your bibles open in front of you as we come to study uh, the first nine verses of galatians chapter three Uh, harry asked me for a title well he asked if i had a title for the sermon on the way out the door Um, i very hastily come up with the title a forgetfulness that leads to foolishness a forgetfulness that leads to foolishness love is pretty much a bankrupt word in our culture today Love has lost almost all of its meaning, that word love. People don't really understand what true love is anymore. It can be treated as nothing more than a physical attraction to someone else. Or if you feel loved by someone, you might, you might think you're loved by them simply because they praise you, simply because they have good things to say about you. And people tend not to want to hear criticism anymore. And certainly if someone criticises them, they don't see that as a very loving act. They see that as an attack on their personality or an attack on their choices as an individual who is educated and free to make their own decisions. But if if we truly love someone, we will be honest with them. And at times we might even have to be severe with them. Imagine, for example, a little child known to you and loved by you, perhaps your own son or daughter, or a niece or a nephew, or a little child in your church. Imagine one day you're in your garden and they're playing near you. You're reading a book or weeding in the flower beds. And as you look up, you see the child running towards the busy road at the front of the house. And as you look up, you see a massive truck coming towards where your child is headed if they keep going toward the road. Well, what will you do? You'll jump up. You'll run after them. You'll grab them back by the scruff of their neck if you have to and make sure they are kept safe. Now how will you speak to that child who has foolishly run towards the road? Will you, will you praise them for their speed in running towards the road? Will you congratulate them with, with how quickly they were able to leave your side and get to the road? No. You'll call them over and you'll say, come look at this dead dog by the side of the road. You'll rebuke them. You'll point out to them the error of their ways. You might even raise your voice with them and be severe with them. Because you've told them before, they do not follow that dangerous course of action. They don't run out towards the road. It's a foolish, it's a dangerous, it's a potentially fatal decision. Now why will you speak with such severity to that child? It's because you love them. It's because you have a deep concern for their well-being. And as we read Galatians 3, 1-9, I hope you notice the, the severity and the seriousness and the passion in Paul's words. These are the words of a, an angry apostle. An apostle who has a serious message to deliver. And he's angry with the Galatians because he loves the Galatians. Because at, his, at root he has their well-being in mind, their spiritual well-being at the heart of what he says. And the Galatians at this point in their lives, they're they're like little children running towards a busy road with a truck coming towards them because they're being tempted to follow this false teaching that I was mentioning before the reading. The people were coming in and, and adding things to the gospel of Jesus Christ and friends, to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ is to take away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants to stop them in their tracks and pull them back by the scruff of their neck and get them back on course as young infants in the faith. And to do that, in these verses we're going to study, Paul presents to them evidence. He presents two different kinds of evidence to them to prove to them that their course of action is foolish, and that in fact to be truly a son of God, to truly be a Christian, and to truly be blessed as a Christian, is to simply have faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. And so we're going to study this passage with three big questions. Questions that Paul was asking the Galatians and which he asks of us if we are Christians. And the first is this. Have you ignored the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you ignored the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look at verse 1. He says, foolish Galatians, foolish Galatians. In chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul referred to the Galatians as brothers a warm, loving, gentle word. And here he's calling them just foolish Galatians. It's much less personal, it's more serious, because he has something serious to say. And throughout Scripture, the, fool, the foolish person is not someone who lacks knowledge, but rather someone who acts in a foolish way with that knowledge. For example, the Old Testament speaks of the foolish person who says in his heart, There is no God. They look around them, they look at the creation God has made. And yet they don't worship the creator who has put it there. It's not that they lack knowledge. It's not that they don't realize the world is there. They simply don't worship the one who has put the world there. And Paul says similarly, the Galatians, they're foolish. They have knowledge, but they're not using that knowledge. They know the gospel, but they're acting as though they don't, as if they've never heard of it before. He says, in fact, he uses the word bewitched in verse 1. They're acting as though they're under some kind of spell, as if someone has put them under some sort of trance or they're, they're hypnotised. There's a renewed interest in illusions and hypnosis in our culture today. Some of you have maybe seen some of the television shows of Darren Brown, <coughs> who draws huge crowds and calls people up to the stage and, and puts them under hypnosis and gets them to do all sorts of foolish things. They just make edits of themselves when, when they're under hypnosis and the audience will roar with laughter. Well, Paul says that's like the Galatians. They're acting like idiots. It's as if someone has has their eyes locked in on some sort of foolish trick they're like puppets on a string. Now why is Paul speaking like this? Why is he calling them fools? Why is he calling them idiots? Why is he saying they're acting as though they're under a spell? Well, it's because the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached right in front of their faces. And they're simply ignoring it. Paul himself has been to Galatia. He's preached the gospel loudly, publicly, repeatedly, vividly in front of their faces. And they simply cannot ignore that fact. Look what he says at the end of verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now none of the Galatians were at the foot of Calvary's cross. None of the Galatians saw the nails go in and the spear blow to the side, and the thorns on the head of Jesus Christ. But Paul says to them, you may as well have been. You may as well have been. Because I have preached the gospel to you. And it lacks for nothing. And you know it. And instead of having your eyes hypnotized by some foolish teaching, your eyes should be focused upon the cross of Christ and nothing else. He uses the word portrayed The the equivalent for us would be as if a billboard advertisement that you see at the side of the road has gone up right in front of their face. And you can't ignore it. None of us needed to go to the United States a few weeks ago and ask every single citizen we met who they voted for in the presidential election. We don't need to count all the votes that were cast. In front of our eyes, Barack Obama was re-elected President of the United States. It was all over the news, Everyone was talking about it. Even the people who don't like him very much have had to admit that, unfortunately, yes, it's happened, and he's back in the White House. Before our eyes, it happened, and that fact has consequences for today. Mitt Romney, the man who challenged Obama for president, he isn't still turning up at stadiums, making speeches, asking people for money, making promises about what a wonderful president he would be. The election's over. And similarly, Christ has died on the cross. It's finished, it's done, it's in the past. But it has implications, it has consequences for how we behave today and what we believe today. And the Galatians should have known better. Paul is at a loss to understand what they are doing. How they could possibly have become so foolish. Why their eyes are fixed on some sort of nonsense hypnosis teaching. Instead of fixed on the cross of Calvary, to look to anyone or anything else is ridiculous. It's foolish. It's dangerously destructive. The question for us, friends, is are we that foolish? Are our eyes fixed on the cross of Calvary, or is it fixed on anyone or anything else? Hypnotized by the standards of the world. By our own ideas. By what would work for the church. Is the gospel at the centre of what we say and do and think every single day? Are we often in our prayers and in our Bible study going back to the foot of Calvary's cross. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. As the nails go in. And the mocking begins. And the spitting begins. And the thorns pierce his head. Are we reminding ourselves over and over and over again that it's finished? That we don't need to add our works or our performance or our religion to what Jesus has achieved? In our evangelism, are we going round and round in circles with people arguing about exactly what year the earth was created or what a church building should look like or what a church service should sound like? Or are we taking them to the foot of Calvary's cross and showing them Jesus? Opponents of the cross of Calvary, people who like to say, argue that it didn't ever happen, they often say, well, we can't know for sure. I mean, perhaps it happened. Perhaps a man called Jesus died on a cross, but none of us were there, so how can we know? Rubbish. Rubbish. Paul says, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. If you have heard the gospel preached, dear friends, however imperfectly, however unimpressively to your ears you have seen it happen it has, been, it has happened right in front of your face and if you are still not believing it if you are still ignoring it then you are a fool and you will have no excuse when you stand before God don't ignore the gospel don't ignore the truth that Jesus Christ came down from heaven and lived as a man without sin and died a brutal death and rose again And has commissioned his disciples to loudly, passionately, vividly, publicly preach his gospel. To reject that is foolishness of the most inexcusable kind. To accept it is to be blessed without measure. So that's the first question Paul has for these Galatians. Have you ignored the gospel of Jesus Christ? Secondly, he asks them, have you neglected the work of the Holy Spirit have you neglected the work of the Holy Spirit? Verses 2-5 to five. <clears throat> Paul's now going to begin presenting his evidence. He's made a bold statement in verse 1. He now begins to build his case. And the first evidence that Paul draws on for the Galatians is evidence from their own experience as Christians. All that they've gone through, he, he reminds them of it now. And he asks them three or four rhetorical questions in verses 2-5. to five. But the questions can really be summed up in this this one question. Have you neglected the work of the Holy Spirit? He's asking them, how did you become a Christian in the first place? Where were you? Who were you? What were you doing? When God Almighty saved you? Had you you done something to earn his favour? Were you more impressive than the people around you? Were you a better person than your work colleagues or your family members? No, the Holy Spirit came to you in grace and gave you the will and the life to respond to the gospel as it was preached. That was how the Galatians became Christians in the first place. God the Father sent God the Son, died on the cross, rose again, and who sent his spirit. That was who he had promised in the gospel of John. He promises the disciples that he will send a comforter. He will send his spirit to them. And it's through the Spirit that we would be saved. And that's what Paul is reminding them of here. In verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did the Spirit come to you because you were so impressive? Or did He come to you because God had grace upon you? And the answer is obvious. It wasn't anything they had done. Look what he says in verse 3. Are you so foolish... Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, he's saying, look, you've started the right way. The Holy Spirit has come in power and saved you. And that's what makes you a Christian. That's how you can continue living for Christ. That's the right way to live. Don't suddenly go off and try and finish what you've started a different way. It's not down to you. It's down to the Spirit and His work in you. You've started the right way don't suddenly, for no good reason, veer off and go a different way. That would be foolish. About a year ago, I was heading for a, a praise service in one of our churches in Donegal. It was in the middle of nowhere, like most parts of Donegal. And I had never been down the road before in my life. And it was a bendy, twisty, deceptive road. And I couldn't rely upon my own Wonderful ability as someone you can, can use the gear stick and use the brakes and use the steering wheel as impressive as that might be. I had to rely 100% upon my headlights to get me down this road. It was nothing to do with me in a sense. I wasn't going to be able to get any further without my headlights. Now, How foolish would it have been if halfway down this bendy, crazy little Donegal road, I had decided to change my approach And turn off my headlights. And think well I've got this far. I'll just make it up by myself for the rest of the way. That would be incredibly foolish. It would be dangerous. And it could have been fatal. And similarly Paul says. You have begun the right way. And it was nothing to do with you. It was the power of the spirit in you. And to suddenly change course. And think that you're going to finish your Christian life. By your own strength is sheer foolishness. He says in verse 4, did you suffer, or the word there could be experience, so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain. In other words, think of all you've already gone through as Christians. You've heard the scriptures preached. You've learnt more about your faith. You've perhaps overcome some temptations that before you were enslaved to. You've been preaching the gospel to your loved ones. Are you going to say that all of that counts for Nothing. Are you going to turn your back on all of that? You're going to throw it away? That's what they risk doing if they continue in this foolishness. And in verse five, Paul, he really repeats the question of verse two, but he, he changes the emphasis. He puts the emphasis upon God. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, it is God who is at work in you and through you and around you. It is God who is saving sinners in your towns and your cities. It is God who is making you more Christ-like and giving you the power and the grace to die to sin and live for Christ. It is God who is doing miraculous things in your midst. Don't rob God, the Holy Spirit, of glory by giving some place to your works and your performance and your personality. Friends, neglecting the Holy Spirit only ever leads to two outcomes. Pride or despair. Pride or despair. It can lead to pride when we look at our our successes, our victories. Look at me, last week I read the Bible every day. Look at me, last week I shared my faith with someone. Look at me, I still don't do that foolish thing that those other fools still do. Aren't I a wonderful person? God must really love me. Or it can lead to despair when we look at our failures. God can't love me now. I've committed that sin again. Oh, Jesus, Jesus can't have died on the cross for me. Look at the way I've treated that person. God's sacrifice on the cross through Jesus isn't for me. I've, I've, I've fallen into that sin yet again. And suddenly it's all about us and our performance and our morality and our and our goodness. By contrast, the prophet Isaiah says that coming to God with our performance is like coming to him with a pile of soiled underwear and asking him to accept it as our best efforts. It's disgusting in God's sight. And it's not down to our performance. And if you are proud, or if you are despairing, most likely it is because you are neglecting the Holy Spirit, as these Galatians did. You are looking to yourself instead of looking to Christ and his power through you. And this is a particularly common sin in Northern Ireland, because we've grown up in a religious society. Some of us can't remember a time when we didn't go to church. Some of us can't remember a time when we wouldn't have called ourselves a Christian. Some of you, the worst swear word you have ever used is one you just made up. Some of you have never even considered typing filthy words into your Google search engine on your computer. That's, that's good. Praise God for that, but don't count upon that for your salvation. Don't stack up the good deeds in your head and hope that they outweigh the bad and bring them to God as some sort of excuse for who you are. We need the presence and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who makes us respond to Jesus in faith the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart with new desires to say no to sin and yes to Christ it's the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the midst of our trials it's the Holy Spirit who works miraculously in our churches to see sinners saved and prayers answered he's our comforter he's our guide he's our down payment of salvation Paul says elsewhere he's our guarantee dear friends that we are going to make it through this life with all its trials and hardships And that we will stand before God, a justified sinner. That's who the Holy Spirit is. That's what he does. Praise God for him. The Galatians were neglecting him. They were forgetting him. They were looking to themselves. Paul says, don't rob God of his glory. Don't neglect the Holy Spirit. Because to steer away from the Holy Spirit is to steer into sin and into foolishness. So Paul has asked them, have you ignored the gospel of Jesus Christ, preached in front of your faces? Have you neglected the power of the Holy Spirit? As you look back in your life, can you see that power in your life? And thirdly and finally, he asks them, have you forgotten the teaching of Scripture? Have you forgotten the teaching of Scripture? And in particular, he's asking them, have you forgotten the example of Abraham? Have you forgotten the example of Abraham? Verses 6 to 9. As I said already, Paul is building his case here. He's, he's, he's stacking up the evidence to the Galatians to show them that the course of action they are heading out on is foolish. And the second piece of evidence that he brings to them is evidence from the scriptures. And of all the examples Paul could choose to, to back up his argument that we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone, he chooses the best possible example he could possibly choose chooses the example of Abraham. He says in verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a key verse in our text and it's a key verse indeed in this whole argument of Paul's because most likely Paul's opponents were pointing to Abraham to back up their claims. Most likely the false teachers in Galatia were were holding up Abraham as the ultimate, ultimate example. They were saying, well, Abraham's our patriarch, he's our biological father. Abraham was circumcised and Abraham was obedient, therefore Abraham was justified. And therefore God loved Abraham. And instead, Paul quotes here in verse 6 from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as Righteousness. And Paul's choice of quotation is is very wise and it hits the nail on the head because in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 Abraham wasn't an obedient circumcised Israelite. He was an uncircumcised nobody. He wasn't a mighty man of faith just yet who had shown it through all sorts of wonderful obedience to God. God simply made promises to Abraham God accept, or Abraham accepted them by faith and Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight. Listen carefully. There was no righteousness in Abraham that drew God to him. God simply saved him. God simply saved him. William Herschel was a famous musician from the 18th century. Some of you have perhaps heard of him. He was born in Hanover in Germany and at a young age he joined a military band eventually he had to fight he had to go into a conflict situation in the army that was something William had always dreaded he didn't want to fight in the army he must have just been content with playing his flute or doing whatever he did in the band but as battle came and he had to go and fight for his country one day it just became too much for him and he fled from the battlefield he he deserted the army the punishment for, for leaving was death And so William fled the country knowing he could never return to Germany. He settled instead in England to study music and science. Many years later, a man called George came to the throne as King of England. And George was basically a German, he had German heritage. And George knew what William had done. He knew who he was. He was now a famous musician. And he knew what William had done back in Germany. And he summoned him to the castle in London and William very nervously and no doubt full of fear and dread and anxiety he he went along to the castle and he waited for a long time uh, outside the king's throne room eventually one of the king's servants came out to William and gave him a piece of paper and on the paper he read these words I George pardon you for your past offences against our native land he was fully pardoned by the king king knew what he had done but the king simply showed favour to him and granted him pardon from all that he had done friend the king of kings and the lord of lords and the god of this universe holds out that offer to anyone and all you must do is believe in the lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved what had Abraham done when god saved him absolutely nothing Nothing good enough to earn God's favour. But for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God simply saved him. He preached the gospel to Abraham. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, never mind the false teachers. Never mind how attractive their teaching sounds. Never mind what the expectations of others around you are. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says. This is what we believe. This is our authority and no one and nothing else. And it's interesting that Paul says in verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now Abraham didn't hold the scriptures in his hand as we do today. But Abraham had the authoritative word of God and that's what the scriptures are. And that's why we believe them. And the Gospel was preached to Abraham through them. And that's why we must always go back, dear friends, to the authority of the Scriptures. No matter what the world around us wants to hear, no matter what pressures the world brings to bear upon the Church, we ask ourselves repeatedly, what does the Bible say? What does God say? And the Bible says, God says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And it's that faith that makes us sons of Abraham. It's not our works. It's not our, our ethnicity. It's just faith. What did Abraham have faith in? Paul tells us in these verses. He had faith in the gospel. That's what Jesus says in John 8 verse 56. He says Abraham delighted to see my day. He, re- he saw it and was glad. Abraham was looking ahead. Just as we look back. To the finished work of God through his chosen Messiah. He was trusting in God to take away his sin through a perfect sacrifice. Just as we look back and trust that God has taken away our sin through a perfect sacrifice. And Abraham was trusting that God would fulfill his promises. And in Jesus God fulfilled his promises. And he's fulfilling them today. As we go out, the sons of Abraham go out into all the nations and preach the gospel. As God told Abraham, they would hear. Friends, this should mightily encourage us. This should gladden our hearts. This should give us reason to rejoice. Because the evidence from Scripture isn't of a bunch of pious, holy, wonderful, perfect people who God chose to save because they were so impressive and excellent. The Bible is a bunch of misfits and nobodies and fools who God comes to in grace. Abraham, the great example that Paul holds up, he went down to Egypt and on one occasion lied about who his wife was to save his own skin. He said that his wife was his sister, just to avoid any hardship. Noah, the man who built the ark and had faith in God, he got out of the ark and he passed out drunk in his tent. David, the great king of Israel, he committed adultery and murder. Peter, the leader of the apostles, He forgot the gospel and in Galatians 2 you can read about Paul rebuking him for it. These are not impressive people. These are people who God saved and God was gracious to. Not because of anything they had done, but because they believed the Lord God and he counted it to him as righteousness. Over and over and over again that's the pattern we see in Scripture. It's not just the Jews who are saved, but the Gentiles. It's not just the respectable but the unrespectable. It's not just the squeaky clean, but the stinky unclean who God comes and saves. That's who can be sons of Abraham. That's who can be sons of God. That's who can be blessed with more blessing than this world has to offer. Is that you tonight? Is that where your faith lies? Are you looking forward to eternal life through a humble, simple faith in Jesus Christ? Paul has made his case. Are you going to accept it? Do you want to experience this blessing he's speaking of to the Galatians? All of us want to experience blessing, don't we? Are you tired of trying your best and knowing deep down it's it's not going to be enough? Do you tend to forget the Bible and forget the work of the Holy Spirit and forget the truth and the glory, the awful glory of Calvary's cross, we all tend to forget don't we well what's the answer to all of those problems the answer is Jesus back to verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, friends Jesus has finished it, like Abraham will you trust God with that, and will you live by the power of the Holy Spirit in you according to that Christian friends, let's frequently, regularly, joyfully remember the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's joyfully remember that it's not down to us. It doesn't matter how much we do that is right or how much we've done in the past that is wrong. It's about what Jesus has finished. Let's remember that the gospel isn't the starter pack of Christianity. It's not what sets us on our way. It's the beginning and the middle and the end of our lives. And that's what makes us sons of Abraham and sons of God. Is that you tonight? Or are you a fool? Are you foolishly going off in some other course like these Galatians were tempted to? Be in no doubt. It is those of faith who are blessed. Amen. Those close our worship by singing, Father God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ preached in front of our eyes. We thank you for all that Christ has finished and completed at Calvary. Lord, we confess that we will think about it and meditate upon it and praise you for it for the rest of our lives, and still we will understand only a fraction of it. But nonetheless, Father, we pray that we wouldn't just understand what has happened, but that we would act accordingly we would live our lives for Christ, that we would remind ourselves over and over again of what he has done. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit, the one who gave us the faith and the will and the life to respond to Jesus in the first place, the one who continues to work in us mightily and powerfully in our lives and in the lives of those around us, the one who is our down payment and guarantee of eternal life. We thank you for the scriptures and for the example of Abraham, a great man, But a man who was great because of his great God, not because of his own work or his own impressive record, thank you, Father, that he believed the Lord Jesus Christ and it was counted to him as righteousness. Father, remind us of these things. We confess tonight we are prone to forgetting. We are prone to focusing upon ourselves. We are prone to pride in our performance. We are prone to despair in our sin. Help us instead to fix our eyes upon our Saviour and to summon the power of the Spirit and to rejoice in what you have done for us. Part us now with your blessing. Help us to live out this gospel, this glorious, and this great and wonderful gospel that we have. Help us to live it out and to preach it as we have opportunity this week. And may we give glory to our King. In Jesus' name, Amen.